This morning, I want to begin our time by opening right to Scripture. Uh, So if you have your Bibles this morning or your phones that have an app, open, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to share with you a passage that over the last couple weeks has really been doing a number on my life. And so if it's going to bug me out, I'll let it bug you as well. I think it'll be a blessing this morning to you. It's uh, from Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And I want to key in on that phrase specifically, no bitter root. See to it, to it that no bitter root grows up in your life. And so I want to set this in the context of uh, Hebrews 12 because the writer has a whole argument to make, but we're going to come back to this part because I think there's a way that Satan works in our lives through the root of bitterness that we allow to grow. And this morning, I want us to, to cut down that root. I want us to do some work so that we can walk out of uh, this space this morning feeling freer, uh, feeling less bound to uh, the bitterness that, that, that pervades our lives so easy. So before I do that, though, I want to start with prayer this morning. Our Father, we come before you today and we honor you. We, uh, we call you the name above all gods. You are worthy of our praise and you are for us, and that means that nothing can be said against us that's more powerful than you. We, we claim that this morning, God. We ask this morning that you would uh, come and you would, you would uh, cut down the root of bitterness in our lives, God. The trees that we have allowed to bloom and to be planted, that you would take those away, God. And that you would plant in our lives seeds of gratitude, God. That would plant a far different tree that sets us on a better path. This morning, God, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And God's people said, amen. Well, at the beginning of Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews talks about a race. And I'm curious this morning, how many of you have ever run a race before? Uh, even a 5K race, even a mile race, whatever it is. If you've, if you've walked any distance in your neighborhood, we'll count that this morning, okay? Uh, but if you haven't done that, maybe you, you've, got, you've started on a huge venture and you didn't know if you would have the stability, the endurance to finish. It takes planning, it takes training, it takes a lot of things to do that sort of thing. And the writer of Hebrews starts with this image of a race. I know you all can draw on those experiences. And and today, this passage is not talking to those of you who have trained and you've crossed the finish line first, okay? I think this passage speaks even more powerfully to those who have trained and they've tried and they end up near the back of the pack and they struggle to finish. And there's that moment in every race, that moment in every uh, endurance struggle that we have, physical or otherwise that we come to a point and we wonder, can we really finish what we've started? Can God do what he's promised through us? And so this isn't for the person who tells their story as a chain of successes with no struggle or hurdle. This is a message really for those who find themselves hitting hurdles along the way, hoping they can finish, hoping beyond hope. And I think the writer of Hebrews has good news for you this morning. Let's open in, in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. How many of you this morning feel as if you're growing weary? as if you're losing heart in this journey. I, I know if you aren't in that season now, there will come seasons. 
And what the writer is saying is fix your eyes on what is constant. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of the journey. It's Jesus who pulls us forward. So keep listening as, as the pep talk continues. Verse four, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Anyone amen this morning? But painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You notice the idea here is the idea of training. That's that last phrase there, training. But God is almost like the the run club leader, right? That's the one who's pulling us forward. We're setting our eyes on Jesus, and he is training. He's disciplining us so that we don't grow weary, so that we don't lose heart. Now, I'm, I'm not currently in a run club. I've never done that, but I have run two marathons before. And I'll tell you, I'm not in shape to run one today, no matter how hard I try. Because it takes training, right? You don't go out and try to run a marathon. You train for that kind of thing. And I remember seasons where that training seemed hard, and I wondered, you know, am I ever going to get to the race? And I still remember that last marathon. I wonder if I was going to get to the finish line. But there had to be training. There had to be discipline. Our spiritual disciplines are ways that we discipline ourselves for the journey of faith. Right? We, it, there's a difference. There's a huge difference between trying and training. And if you've ever struggled against sin through your own effort, that's trying is what that is, right? If you've ever raced without doing all the training that was necessary, that's trying. And you can't pull that off without training. And so the call of of faith, if we're going to finish the race, is to join God in training toward righteousness. This spiritual life requires it of us so that we can complete the race. Let's read on in verse 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Any feeble arms out there, weak knees? Maybe some of you feel like you've gotten too far into the race to quit, but you're not sure how you're going to finish. And this brings us to the focal point of the text for this morning. Because the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage us to be a people who don't lose hope, who continue to, to go even when our arms are feeble, even when we stumble and fall. So listen to his encouragement to the church again in verses 14 and 15. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. All right, the writer of Hebrews says, make every effort to live at peace. Live holy lives. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and make sure, see to it. I love that phrase. See to it that no bitter root root grows up that causes trouble or defiles many. We're going to come back to that in a bit. But the next thing that the writer of Hebrews does is he goes to an image. He goes to a story that this Hebrew church would have known quite well. Story about Jacob and Esau, who were two twin brothers back earlier in the story. If you're new to faith, we're glad that you're here. And I want to catch you up on this story because I think it's really important to understanding the point that is trying to be made here. In chapter 11, Hebrews 11, uh, 
the writer is talking about all these people who've lived their lives by faith. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Abraham did this. But we come to a part in the text where he brings up Jacob and Esau that he's about to reference again in chapter 12. So I want to read first what he says in chapter 11, and then he comes back to it a little bit later. This is Hebrews 11, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. Find it interesting here. Esau comes up in Hebrews chapter 11, but he's not mentioned as one of those who lived by faith. He's blessed by one who lived by faith, and his brother Jacob is referenced as the one by faith. Esau's not brought up there when it talks about those who live by faith. And in chapter 12, this is the image he gives. He goes right back to the story that all of them would have known well. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 12. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. In other words, he's saying, when you run this race, there's a lot of people that you can pattern your life after. Plenty of people in the last chapter I told you about, but one person you don't want to pattern it after is Esau. Because when it comes down to it and things get hard, Esau is going to take a bowl of stew before he ever finishes the race. And that's the story as we go back to the book of Genesis with these two brothers, right? Some of you remember this story. Uh, this is kind of a messed up family. So if you're about to go to a dinner where there's a messed up family, then uh, that's all biblical, okay? That's kind of the only option we have. We're all broken by sin. I think it's funny sometimes when people say, hey, we need to look at what biblical marriage is. And I think, no, you don't want to pattern anything after biblical marriages. Like all of these families and marriages are, are, are broken and messed up. And that, to me, it provides hope as a reminder of no matter how bad we make it for our own kids, uh, that there's grace and that God works even through that. But I digress. So you're, you're not supposed to have favorites as parents, right? That's kind of a rule that we know in our culture. But it often happens that there are favorites. And in this story, we find out that these, this family has a struggle because they're people who are playing favorites. So again, just kind of backing up in the story, Abraham's the father of many nations. And Abraham uh, has a son, and his son's named Isaac. He has two sons, but the line goes through Isaac. And Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca. And they have two sons who are twin boys named Jacob and Esau. And they name their kids in interesting ways. Uh, Again, they're not supposed to have favorites, but Jacob has his favorite. His favorite is Esau. And Esau is just like his dad, right? He loves to hunt like his dad. His name is Esau, which means uh, Harry, which is an interesting name to give your kid. I, mean, I don't know if that's what Harry is today is actually the you know, English of Esau. But then he has a nickname, Edom, which means red, which they're not that creative, right? He's a hairy red guy, and that's what his nickname and his name mean. And his names describe him perfectly. Esau is red. He's hairy. He's a man's man. He goes out and he hunts wild game with his dad. And, and you understand that. If you have a hobby that your child likes, there's a connection that happens there, right? And you can see that connection happening with, with Esau and with Jacob. So they're out there hunting all the time. Well, Jacob's a little different, right? Jacob loves to be more at home with his mom. He's more of a, a, a homebody than he is the hunter in the family. And so Rebecca likes Jacob best. And the name Jacob means grasp the heel, which isn't that creative either. Because if you know the story, when they're born, Esau's born first and Jacob is holding on to his heel when the birth happens. And it's actually an idiom, grasp the heel, that means he deceives. That's what Jacob's name can mean as well. And if any of you are younger brothers, you know that that's a means of survival, right? Like you got to find your way. You got to hustle. You got to do whatever it takes to make sure you get what's yours. And Jacob certainly finds a way to do that throughout the story. So there's this great story in Genesis 25 
where Esau's doing his normal thing. He's out hunting and he comes home hungry. And guess what Jacob's doing? He's got this red stew that he's making. And, you know, Esau's, his name is red. So this is a good thing, right? Maybe it's his favorite meal. I don't know. But he comes home and he goes, I am so hungry. I'm starving. Jacob, would you give me a little of your stew? And Jacob does what he knows how to do best, right? He hustles. And so he makes this stew and he basically says, hey, if you'll give me your birthright, which is basically the inheritance, then I'll give you this stew. And Esau runs it around in his head and he says, well, I mean, if I die because I don't have any food, then it doesn't matter. I'm not going to get the blessing anyway, the inheritance. So sure, go ahead and do that. Because So he, he actually hands in the long-term inheritance for a, a, a bowl of stew. You can tell this isn't the kind of guy who's going to be able to finish a race, right? Esau lives his moment, his life in the moment. He's about instant gratification. And part of our spiritual maturity, part of maturing as a person is moving from a need for instant gratification to being able to lay that gratification. Isn't that a big part of our journey? I mean, children, when they need something, they cry and they let you know it until you give it to them. And part of what you're trying to do as parents is help them see just because you have this impulse doesn't mean that's necessarily the right response. Our growth, and this is a lifelong process, isn't it? Is a process of not always saying yes, because it takes saying no in certain moments so that you can say yes to a finish line, doesn't it? It takes a lot of no's to train for a race in order to be able to get that medal at the end. And Esau doesn't have that ability. He seems to be impulsive. He's ready to say yes whenever anything great comes. Is this hitting home with anyone? Later in Genesis 27, Jacob and Esau have another conflict. See, Isaac's getting old, their dad, and he's losing his eyesight, maybe on his deathbed. And so he calls Esau in. Esau's given up the birthright, the inheritance, but he still has this thing called the blessing that is kind of the line of blessing that God blesses through. And so Esau, the older son, is supposed to get this. So he calls Esau in on his bed when he can hardly see, and he says, Esau, I want you to go out and do what you've always done. Go out and hunt, bring home a great meal, and feed me, and I'll give you the blessing that you deserve. And I imagine that Esau goes out and he goes to some of his favorite hunting spots that his dad and him have been on. Maybe he's a little sad because he knows dad may never go on these trips again. And while he's out there, he doesn't know what's happening back home. Because Rebecca, remember she has a favorite Jacob, hears and over, overhears the conversation and says, listen, Jacob, this is your chance. You've already got the birthright. Let's go for the blessing. So what I want you to do is go and kill two goats from the flock, bring them in, and I'll make dad's favorite meal. And we'll bring it in and we'll put hair on your arms because you don't have any to show for yourself, but Esau does. And so he puts these skins on his arm, the animal's hair, and he goes in and Jacob delivers this meal and he can tell something's funny about his voice, but eventually he's convinced this is Esau. He's brought home what he's promised, but it's really Jacob in, in disguise. It, it, what, talk about a dysfunctional family, right? You've got mom trying to deceive dad by using the younger brother to get the favorite to get the blessing. Not the, I mean, this is a dysfunctional family. So Rebecca overhears the conversation. This is the way it goes. And Esau, when he finds out about this, he's furious. He's ready to kill his brother. And so his mom finds out about it. And, and so Jacob goes on the run. He runs away. And the text in Hebrews comes alive, I think, when you know this story. I want you to hear again the verse I started with, verse 15, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Because when you understand this Jacob and Esau narrative and story, maybe you understand your own family dynamics and, and issues. Maybe this comes alive in a new way. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You think there's a bitter root that's grown up in Esau's life at this moment? He's carrying this grudge. He's ready to kill him as soon as his father dies. 
Some of you, you have some pretty good reasons to be bitter as well. Because life is hard, isn't it? There's difficult moments, there's surprises and hurdles we never imagined we'd come up against. We have plenty of good reasons we can show to allow the root of bitterness to grow up in our lives. And some of you, you've experienced some deep trauma. And it's easy to fall into that bitterness that grows up. And and it's surprising what happens in chapter 12. This is what I never connected before until I was reading it a couple weeks ago was verse 16. Because I read verse 15 about bitterness and that root. And I've never connected it with the verse that follows. I want you to see this connection. Second half of verse 15. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. The writer seems to be connecting that bitterness and this root that grows up in our lives can easily be connected to the sexual immorality that occurs in our lives. But it's larger than sexual immorality. Any kind of instant gratification, a desire to say yes in the moment that forces us to say no to the race that God has put us on. There's a connection between the root of bitterness that grows up and the sin that besets us and and the result of that. So this morning, what I want to invite you to do is this. I'm about to share some of the the reasons that seeds of bitterness get sown in our lives. Some of the sources of bitterness. And I'm going to touch in some areas that I I think will connect. And it may be a little hard this morning. But I want want you, before we go there, to think about what is that bitterness in your life? What what is it that's caused you to, to, to allow this kind of seed of bitterness to grow up? Maybe it's even blossomed into a tree. Or maybe it's just kind of sprouting out of the ground. But you... You know deep inside what that is. Check for a moment and ask, what is it right now? What seed has been planted in your life that's blooming into bitterness? And now I want to share with you four sources that I think are the reason that bitterness finds a place in our lives. The first is this, painful events are a reason for bitterness to grow up in our lives. Like I said, some of you have experienced tremendous pain in your lives. You've experienced trauma, maybe abuse, tragedy. Maybe you were abandoned as a child and didn't receive from your parents what you really needed most, or maybe there was a sudden death in the family you never expected. It's easy for painful events in our lives to plant seeds of bitterness. And for some of us, one key event can set us on a trajectory of a tree that blooms for the rest of our lives. For some of us, bitterness becomes like a security blanket. It's hard to imagine life any other way because that's just the way things have been. And so we just kind of allow this blanket to go with us throughout life. But the antidote to the first source of pain or the first source of bitterness, the painful events in our lives, the antidote is forgiveness. But as I say that, I really want to clarify this morning how what forgiveness is and what it, what it isn't. Because that's real glib, isn't it? Because some of the situations that I'm speaking into right now are really painful things. And I don't want to speak in in any way that's not helpful or, or, or to have you misunderstand what I mean about forgiveness. It's a hard act. It's a processing that we have to do. But when it comes to forgiveness, let me say a couple of things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not acting or denying like those painful events didn't happen. That's not what forgiveness is, is to say, well, that didn't happen. No, it's actually to name what it is and to move past it. Uh, forgiveness is not forgetting and establishing full trust automatically. You don't owe the person who's betrayed that trust every bit of trust that happens after that. That's a process if it happens at some point. And forgiveness is not getting rid of the natural consequences. Often God has that when our sin occurs, natural consequences are part of what happens as a result of that. And so just because you forgive someone doesn't mean those natural consequences don't need to occur. That's part of how God has set up our world. But there are some things that forgiveness is. Forgiveness is handing over judgment ultimately to the only one who can judge uh, rightly, and that's God. 
It's allowing God that, that part. Forgiveness is also freeing yourself from allowing that trauma or pain to define the rest of your life. And forgiveness is digging up the seeds of bitterness and refusing to allow a moment in time that was unfair, that wasn't your fault, to define the rest of your life. There's a maxim that I think is true about forgiveness. It's this unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Sometimes we think we're actually hurting the other person. And what we're doing when we fail to forgive is hurting ourselves. We're not letting go and letting the work of forgiveness and, and, and healing to begin. Forgiveness hurts us much more than the person we think we're hurting in those situations. Some of you need to consider, what is the next step of forgiveness in my life? What does it look like to cut out that root of bitterness by taking the first step? And you may need help along that journey. And let me encourage you, if you, if you want to talk this morning to somebody who's in the prayer room or find one of us staff or anyone in this church, we would love to help you find someone that can walk with you well through that. Maybe it is counseling that's going to be the journey for you, that's going to help you find what that road to healing is. But begin to take that first step. The second source of bitterness is unaddressed conflict. Unaddressed conflict. I could could guess, it was true in first service when I looked out, that most of us, if I ask you, is there a person that comes to mind uh, that you have bitterness set against? There's a face that comes to mind pretty soon on that. Because there's a lot of pain that's happened in our lives. Somebody maybe that you hope never to kind of see coming around the corner at the grocery store. Some of you, in fact, you kind of set up your lives so that you never have to come across that person because it brings up all kinds of old things. So the problem there is the conflict was never probably addressed or maybe it wasn't addressed positively or it didn't come out in any positive way. But in the same moment you decide not to address that conflict, you're planting a seed of bitterness that can grow up in your life. See, humans are storytelling animals. We have DNA that's set within us that when we see details that happen, we begin to tell a story about those details. This happens in marriages. It happens in friendships. It happens with people who become people that we can't even engage with because the conflict grows so large. And so what happens is we have details that happen in our lives and we put those details together in a relationship with someone and we begin to tell a story about who they are. Sometimes that story's right. But sometimes that story's more like a conspiracy theory that we begin to build and build evidence upon. So sometimes this happens when I have an interaction with Holly or with one of the kids is they'll do something and I'll, I'll imagine some scenario or story that I put to that. And if I don't address that conflict, what happens is I have the narrative and now I'm going to look for any evidence to build onto my case to prove that I was right in the story that I'm telling. Does this make sense when I'm describing how we do this? There's an author that's been really helpful to me over the last several years. Her name's Brene Brown. She's a shame and vulnerability researcher at the University of Houston. And she tells an incredible story that's really shaped uh, Holly and me in our marriage and something I'd love to pass off to you today. Uh, She talks about a story where in 2012, they were going on a vacation, her and her grown kids. She has four kids. And uh, they, they went to Lake Travis. And Lake Travis in Austin was a place where she'd grown up going to this lake. And so it had all kinds of nostalgic memories for her. And so they decided to take a vacation with her family. Now her, her own family's there, extended family. And they're going to try to make this not a, a, a vacation without laws, right? They're going to try to actually eat right. And they're going to try to exercise and do healthy things, not just kind of throw everything out on this vacation. So they plan their meals. They get to the lake. They're excited. One of the things they, they decided to do, her and her husband, is 25 years before they've been married that long. 25 years before, they used to be swimmers. They were lifeguards and something they enjoyed to do together. And so they decided, we're going to do that. We're going to get up every morning. We're going to get out to the dock before the kids get up. Kids will be taken care of by the rest of the family. We're going to go on a 
500-yard uh, swim across the cove, and then we'll come back. So 1,000 yards every morning. So they were excited about this, the good swimmers for the most part. It had been a few years since they were at their best. So they get in the water, and, and uh, she's so excited. This is this great moment and this childhood place. Nostalgia's coming back. Her family's there. We're going to do this right. We're going to get out in the water in the morning. And they get out, and they get a little bit ways into their swim, and she stops, and she says, I just want you to know, she said this to her husband, I, this is such a meaningful moment for me. And uh, it was just this vulnerable moment of just gratitude that she was sharing with her husband. And her husband just kind of said, yeah, the, the water's nice and kept paddling. And so, of course, she's starting to go, well, what's going on here? This is a little, maybe you didn't hear me. So they get to the other side of the cove after the first half of the swim. And, and they're kind of doggy paddling and trying to, before they decide to go back, catching their breath. And she goes, um, I just want you to know, this is such a meaningful thing to be here in this place with you in this moment. I'm so glad I married you. And I just want you to know how special this is. And he said, uh, yeah, the swim's nice. Let's get back. And at this point, she's starting to get a little upset, right? Like she shared this vulnerable moment, and he didn't seem to care. Surely he heard her after two times. So they swim all the way back, and when they get back to the dock, he's about to get out, and she goes, no, I want you in the water. And, and she says to him, basically, hey, did you not hear me the first two times? What I said was, this is a meaningful moment in that great tone you get the third time you try to describe, right? It's a vulnerable moment that she thought, he had betrayed. And uh, she said, at that point, I realized I can make the rest of this day miserable. <laughs> I can make the rest of this vacation miserable because it's so easy to go into our corners and just devolve into our own stories. But what she did has changed the shape of their marriage, changed the shape of her business. And it's a question that I want to leave with you that Holly and I are trying to use in our own relationship. And it's the question that's this. She said to her husband that day, she said, you know, I don't want to devolve into something other than what this is. I, I, I just want you to know, I'm telling a story right now out of the details that I have of what's just occurred. And it's not the most beneficial story I can tell. And I'm not giving you the benefit of the doubt. I know you're a better person than the story I'm telling. Would you care to tell me what's really going on? If you would disrupt some of the conflicts in your life right now with that question before you spin out of control, it's amazing what might stop. And what she found when he shared his side was amazing. Because he said, Boy, I, now I know you're going vulnerable and you need me to respond. He said, here's the situation. Last night I was in bed and I was thinking about our week and it's a vacation weekend, lots of boats on the, the lake. And so I had this dream last night that our four kids were out on the water and they were on a raft and we, this speedboat comes through and I can tell it's going to hit them. So I did everything I could as a dad to try to protect them. I tried to pull them and actually went underwater with them to go beneath the propeller to, and, and I couldn't save the kids. And while you were saying whatever you're saying, I didn't hear a word you said because I was stuck with an anxiety moment trying to figure out how I get across this cove and how I get back without someone dying. And I tell that story because that was so meaningful to me because I do that all the time. And I think a lot of us do that. It's a natural thing. We tell stories from the details we have. And sometimes we're not as generous as we should be with those stories. But if we would stop ourselves and we would ask the question, I need to give you the benefit of the doubt in the situation. What is happening? It's amazing sometimes the stories that might come on the other side. I think about this. We do this all the time. Think about the homeless man that you come across, right? You tell a story from the details of your life, your worldview, your experiences about what's on the other side of that sign. Sometimes you might decide, well, well, this is a really hard day. He probably needs something, and you might provide that. Or maybe other times other people would say, well, he must be a wounded veteran. I bet there's a story behind this that I'd love to know more about and be able to help in this situation. Or maybe it is that time where you say, you know, I've seen too many of these situations. It's just a lazy person on the other side of the sign. It's that same story we get into, isn't it? Of taking the details we have, 
spinning a story, and sometimes we're real generous with those stories, and sometimes we're not so generous. We are storytelling creatures. And animals, they don't tell conspiracy theories, but there's something about us that do as humans. And we can tell those stories in all kinds of ways. And I tell this story because I think it's an illustration of what Jesus taught us to do when we have unaddressed conflict. In Matthew chapter 18, there's a story I just want to share briefly with you. Just one verse, actually. There's more you can read about it later. But he talks about when we have conflict with people, this is how we handle it. I think Jesus is wise, not just our Savior. I think it's both, right? He knows the best way of life to live. I think this is great advice. He says, this is uh, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Jesus is probably saying a lot of things in this passage, but I think one of the things he's saying is, stop making up stories in your head and assuming that you know exactly what's on the other side of you. Stop just kind of building a narrative and not going directly to that person and then building a case with all the evidence you can muster against an organization or a person. Don't we do this? We assume things and we, we build our case and then we, we try to convince ourselves that our narrative is true. But if we would just stop and we would go to people and we would do what Jesus says, it's amazing how many of those times would be disrupted. When we delay the conversation, we believe the worst. And then we look to every future interaction for more evidence for something other than the most generous gift that we can give to another, which is addressing the conflict directly. Jesus taught us to halt this process. See, the, un- the antidote to unaddressed conflict is to address the conflict. And that is really hard for some of us, probably some of us more than others, because some of us, we're, we're conflict avoiders and we don't like those moments. And it's easier to just kind of stay where we're at and, and just avoid. And sometimes that, that's an, an okay tactic, but when it comes to relationships that matter most, when it comes to people in our church family that we're brother and sister with, when it comes to, I think as often as possible, the best thing to do is just to go to that person and give them the benefit of the doubt and just ask the question, hey, I'm telling a story right now, but I'd love to know the reality behind this story. And what might happen in our churches and in our families if we would step into that? The third source of bitterness is comparison. When you compare yourself, you're planting the seeds of bitterness. And as the Hebrews writer says, Sexual immorality is on the other side of the seed, the, the seed of bitterness. And some of you need to hear this warning this morning clearly right now, I think. One of the dangers of comparison comes in our marriage. When you don't feel appreciated at home, when the romantic feelings naturally give way to the part of marriage where it takes work, bitterness can often be the result. And sometimes all it takes is when you don't feel appreciated at home, uh, a flattering word or a certain look or a flirtatious comment that all of a sudden leads to places you would never expect it to go because it feels so good opposite what it's like to do life in the trenches at home all the time. And I've talked to too many couples on the other side of an affair that will tell me of this danger. And I mentioned this example because Hebrews tends to make this example. It says, beware, see to it that the root of bitterness does not grow up in you because it defiles men and it causes all kinds of trouble. And then he goes directly to the story of Esau and he says, and sexual immorality is sometimes the result of that. Flirtation outside of your marriage is not harmless. It is not playful. It is playing with fire that can burn down your entire house. So guard your heart. Take delight in the spouse of your youth. Do not play the comparison games because it's dangerous. But this is not just about sexual immorality, is it? Comparison happens all over the place. Comparison happens when it comes to our jobs and thinking that maybe we deserve more because we've worked harder than the person who got the promotion. 
It happens on social media all the time, isn't it? We compare our reality with the highlight reels of others on social media or the Christmas cards that'll come in just a few months. I mean, our, our picture session this year was a nightmare, I'll tell you that, okay? But it's not going to look that way when you get the Christmas card. We have these stories behind the scenes, and yet we put forward a certain picture of things. And so we compare our lives against the best moments in, in other people's lives, or at least the look of that. And the antidote to this kind of comparison that robs our souls, that kills our spirits, is gratitude. It's gratitude. Comparison says that we're not enough or, or that we're better than others that can result in pride, but I can't tell you enough how important gratitude is. In my life, just over the last month, I've started a new practice that I want to encourage some of you to take on. Uh, I got a journal uh, that was a gift, and I, I just had this sense that I, I, I missed out on so much the last eight years of my life. Eight years was when we first had our first son, Maddox, and it seems like a blur. I mean, there were sleepless nights. Holly had a lot more than I did, I'll promise you that, but but those were hard moments, raising three kids, feeling like we were always just so tired. And I, I did not take time to appreciate some of those small moments and those stories. And I know some of you are nodding your head because you can remember back and you're thinking, yes, hold on to those moments. So what I just started to do a month ago was every night in a journal, just writing one story, one thing, one thing I'm grateful for my family. Whether that's my kids and a silly story that happened, whether it's a fun thing we got to do, whether it's an experience that my wife and I got to experience on a date night, whatever it might be, I'm trying to draw my attention to what I'm grateful for rather than comparing myself against others that I think their lives might be better than mine or that I'm owed something. And it's amazing what it does. You can find all kinds of things to be bitter about if you look for them. But if you'll look for things you're grateful for, it's amazing how many gifts are there to notice as well. So the antidote to this in our lives, comparison is gratitude. The last source of bitterness I want to talk about this morning is, uh, is unmet expectations. It's been said before that expectations are often premeditated disappointments. It's that gap, isn't it, between where our expectations lie and where reality is, and the larger the gap, the more disappointment that we live with. And it's so easy in our lives to set up all these expectations about what the outcome is going to be, and so we do all this work with an outcome in mind, and then we're frustrated on the other side when it doesn't come out the way we wanted it or expected Sometimes we never even really shared those expectations with the other person that we expected from. When I think about unmet expectations in my life, I think about entitlement. Entitlement is the death to the spiritual life. And spiritual maturity is a process that leads us away from needing outcomes to go a certain way to just living in the moment and enjoying the gifts that God brings all along the way. I think about this in in all kinds of false expectations I've had. But the antidote to this, the antidote to unmet expectations is the practice of surrendering the outcomes. What would it look like for you if you struggle with disappointment or maybe you feel like I had to be further along. I I should have gotten more recognition than what I've gotten. Or maybe I'm above this task because I'm finally to this point in my career. Whatever it may be, those unmet expectations, it's deadly if you have entitlement. But if you can learn to surrender the outcomes, it can change everything. Some, some of you this morning, your, bitter, your bitterness and your root of bitterness comes from an experience where you had an expectation where God was going to do something and come through. And what it seems like is that he didn't come through. And, and so there was a, maybe a false expectation sometimes that we were taught growing up that if I live a righteous life, then God has to do these things for me. He has to protect me from these things. When the promise that Jesus gave us is uh, everybody's going to have suffering in this life. The rain is going to fall on the righteous, and it's going to fall on the unrighteous. 
There's no promise that things will be guaranteed on the other side. But if we can surrender those outcomes, it's amazing the gratitude that can well up in us. From just the journey and from the work that we do, the life that we give, the gratitude that we seek. If your spiritual life is dependent on a certain outcome, get ready to experience disappointment. Because life is just not that controllable. And it's hard to grow in gratitude when your expectations are so high. Again, the gift is not the outcome. It's not the end. The gift is the journey. The gift is found in the doing. And if you ever get to a place of her again where you believe like you, the outcome ought to be different, you're owed something. Boy, it is just, that's like planting seeds and watering them, this root of bitterness. So I want to end this morning by coming back just quickly to the Jacob and Esau story. Again, Jacob, at the end of the story, and Esau, they've been apart for years. And Jacob's terrified about the prospect of coming across Esau. He's the guy he didn't want to come across in the grocery store. And there comes this scene where Jacob's preparing to meet Esau, and he sends out servants ahead, and he sends them out with gifts for Esau. He's trying to, like, you know, just get on his good side by giving him all these things, maybe the blessing that, or the, the inheritance that should have been Esau's. He's trying to give some of that back to him. And when they come together, Jacob bows his head before his brother, fearful of what Esau is going to do. I want to read this scene, and I want you to think about all of the bitterness that could have grown up in Esau's life and, and the amazing response that we see of grace on the backside. This is Genesis chapter 33, beginning in verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, they are, these, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they bowed down too. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. That moment does not come without incredible work in between. Because it would have been easy for unmet expectations to cause the root of bitterness to grow up. It would have been easy for comparison to be a part of that. It would have been easy for all four of those things I mentioned earlier, unaddressed conflict, to well up and create a root of bitterness in Esau's life. I don't know what kind of work he did or who he worked through it with, but I can tell you this. The root of gratitude grown up in his life, not the root of bitterness. I want to read just one more time verses 8 and 9 when it says, listen to the gratitude, not the bitterness. This is the root he's been sowing as a root of gratitude. Esau asked, what is the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. I'm amazed by this story. In fact, part of me wants the writer of Hebrews to include this in there too in chapter 11, right? Yes, he made impetuous decisions. And yes, the root of bitterness probably grew up in Esau's life, but he did some work to begin to root that out. He cut at the root of bitterness, and he added the gift of gratitude. I mean, you you can hear it there, can't you? I already have enough. God has blessed me far beyond what I deserve. So what I want to challenge you this week is, which of those four sources of bitterness may be working on you most in this season? And it may be forgiveness that needs to be the result. It may be gratitude. You may need to address a conflict and ask the question. I'm telling a story right now, and I want to be more generous than that. I want to hear what's really going on. And that may be across the table, even this week at Thanksgiving, as you go to meet family, just as Jacob and Esau did. It's okay to take a gift like Jacob did. That may help. 
But the hope here is in what God does in our lives, and it only happens if we're willing to cut down that root of bitterness and replant it with a, a root of gratitude. So that's my encouragement to you today is give thanks in this season. Enjoy this time as much as possible with those that will be with you this week. But church, we find what we look for. If you look for reasons to be bitter, you will find a myriad of reasons. You'll have an endless list that you can keep a journal on. You can keep that record of wrongs. But if you look for reasons to be grateful, you will be shocked at the number of things you have that are gifts in your life. So choose gratitude in this season. Let's close with prayer today. God, our prayer today is that you would step into our lives, that you would intervene, that you would continue to pour your gifts even in the midst of us focusing sometimes on the things that are not gifts. God, my prayer this morning has been all week for this uh, group of people, God, in first service and in second, that you would speak a powerful word that would be unique to them, that they would sense your voice and your calling, and not just the sense of where bitterness may have grown up, God, but also a call to some kind of antidote, to some kind of action. It's not enough to dig up the roots of a tree. We need to replant. So God, that's our plan this week is to replant in ways that are a blessing to you, a blessing to the people around us, and that grow us up so that we can finish the race that's been started. We pray this, God. We pray for the sustenance and for the endurance, God, that your spirit would discipline us, God, when needed, so that we can finish the race set out before us. And we look to the great cloud of witnesses. We're grateful for them, for the ways they planted seeds for us as well and passed on the deposit of faith. God, may you continue to root us on with them, those that cloud of witnesses on our journey, even this week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.